Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Welcome back to another history episode. And as we know, people like to make the word magic association to history being simply his story, right? Implying a subjectivity or the idea that the victors write history. And sure, that is something that obviously applies in many cases. However, when we examine these many subjective his stories, is there a grander narrative that we find that might be tied to a divine story that transcends all subjectivity, but at the same time strangely works with it. And that will be an important theme as we dive here into the strange world of occult Nazism. And we'll find all kinds of very conflicting ideas and amalgamations of things that seemingly don't go together, but somehow they do in this odd fusion of perhaps a more Protestant carryover from the culture in terms of millennialism with an esoteric theosophy that is very akin to Blavatsky ideas and then bringing in Darwinism and racialism fuse that with a bit of Gnostic conspiracy theory and secret Catholic orders that preserved some sort of esoteric Kabbalah that was mercilessly persecuted by an evil Dark Ages inquisitional church and imposed its tyrannical, despotic, authoritarian interpretation of the story of Christ and his church. And that's what you get. And there's a lot of people who promote the latter part that are not Nazis. And what's very strange is they sound just like the Nazis in a lot of instances, except for a few key fundamental oppositions, which we might call a dialectic that has been designed to unify on things that attack enemies of New World Order institutions and agendas, and to keep you occupied by barking at your own shadow. And what's even stranger is we'll find that the spirits who are talking to these particular folk, telling them how it is, how reality works, what to do about it, well, they all seem to be working with your own subjective situation to promote the same broad principles and to give you an evil archon to eternally battle against, which magically always includes the Catholic Church. Welcome back to another P2BP episode number 26. And we're going to discuss a topic that many people from all different walks of life are quite fascinated by, seem to be really enamored with or enthralled with, but for different reasons. And I would say that the fascination is warranted, but at the same time, people tend to over-exaggerate and mythologize and bring it to all of these different levels that, I guess, to put it nicely, are a bit imaginative. And, of course, the topic we are talking about here is Nazi occultism. And I don't think that we need to appeal to ancient aliens or dramatic History Channel-type documentaries to find a lot of strange and wild things going on 
in regards to this topic. And the main source that we will be focusing on is a book called The Occult Roots of Nazism, Secret Aryan Cults and Their Influence on Nazi Ideology by the somewhat recently deceased British historian Nicholas Goodrick Clark. Now, I know many people say that a British historian writing on German history is not exactly going to be the most impartial version of history, but I will say that from what I read, he seems to be pretty good about keeping his own personal opinions out of things for the most part. And no matter what, you can never have a truly neutral position on anything and your own personal observations are going to color things. But the question is, does that overshadow and become the focus of your history or do you let the history be what derives your interpretations on it? And I think that if you focus on the latter, that is the best you can ask for whenever reading any nonfiction work. So with that being said... Let's discuss a few important things before we dive too deeply into Nazi esotericism. Because after reading this book, I noticed that there were a lot of dialectics at play and a lot of strange situations that were arising from this and a lot of dichotomies at play and a lot of people having viewpoints that were somewhat contradictory, but was it perhaps their subjectivity that led to that contradiction and then certain things start to get conflated that don't have proper distinctions, and that leads to things like World War II, in my opinion. And we'll explain some of those dialectics shortly, but I'd also like to put out there, right at the onset, that I do not believe that Nazi occultism was the driving factor of the entire party. This, I think, is the History Channel version or the alt-media version that wants to blame everything ever on the Nazis and that all they were were a bunch of satanic occultists practicing black magic in some overt fashion. Because I think what this does is take the focus off the Enlightenment principles of which Darwinism spawned and it was being engaged with a more right-wing authoritarian manifestation of this scientific rationalism, rather than any overt sense of magical rituals and pagan LARPing, let's put it. And maybe the best analogy we could make is the United States as a whole versus an individual state like California. If you wanted to view the occult influence as something akin to California, where it's, you know, a decent size, and there's a lot of prominent figures that overlap in the general policy and direction of America that come from there, but it's not necessarily the view of the majority or the vibe of the majority on the whole, whereas all Californians are Americans, but not all Americans are Californians. And then within that, you have to think of left-right battles as well, where some of these occult-type figures were not enamored with the racialist policies, but many were. So there's a lot of other things to consider. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it gives a broad understanding. And lastly, I would say that the most prominent figure in the Nazi party who was involved with people of the more esoterically minded ilk was Mr. Heinrich Himmler. I do not think that Hitler really gave two craps about the esoteric stuff, generally speaking. However, we will make a comparison to the types of information that was shown in the Occult Science series 
where a lot of the seemingly scientific, rational scientism as we see it with people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Carl Sagan or all the stuff that's promoted out there by the science bros does have a lot of roots in people who were practicing occult magic and obviously going back to traditions like John Dee and a lot of this strange overlap between magical understandings of things and occult rituals and occult Freemasonry with the Enlightenment philosophs and that stuff we talked about in Barwell's memoirs, where a lot of the history is very similar. The occult history in Pike's Morals and Dogmas and Blavatsky's Isis Unveiled and Secret Doctrine do have a lot of common overlap with stuff that you'll hear in the mainstream, especially from shows like Cosmos. We talked about the programming that's basically in lockstep with the history of the mystery religions. However, people like Sagan or Tyson will bash certain people who are tied to the more esoterically minded ilk, people like Paracelsus, and obviously they try to downplay or dismiss people like John D., Jack Parsons, etc. So I'd say that there's a lot more commonalities than there are differences, and especially when they're all unified against the old world empire and Catholicism in general. And then thinking about the idea of some people being more overt and grandiose about magical rituals using pentagrams and sigils and whatnot, again, in a very overt fashion. But are there sort of pentagrams or symbols used in things like advertising that nobody deems as being anything but secular propaganda, right? And so is there something connecting them that's a bit more fundamental than we might think? And again, that was the point of occult science. So with that being said, let's talk about alchemy and occultism as we understand it in relationship to dialectics. These were themes that we talked about in the occult Catholicism series, where when you take two things that are not equal to each other, but you conflate them and try to make people think that they are equal, that can be considered an occult alchemical equilibrium, if you will, but it's based upon a deception of unifying two opposites that don't go together, but making it perceive like they do to all of the people who you are trying to perform your magical trick for. And that absolutely applies to secular media propaganda. And on the flip side, sometimes the magical act is to take things that do go together, but to try to separate them into a false distinction and then that can be used to fool people as well. So to provide some examples with this that relate directly to this book, we will have a lot of these esoteric occultists claiming a conspiracy theory of a Jewish nature, but they conflate the Roman Catholic Church and the Talmudic Rabbinical Judaism as being one and the same. Now they do have a common ancestor in everything going on around the time of the first century AD, but did they have very fundamental distinctions that sent them on different trajectories that couldn't be any further apart than one another in those very fundamental ways, despite having some commonalities, but are those commonalities more peripheral and the ones that are distinct are much more important and fundamental? And that is similar to when people try to conflate the Roman Catholic Church with the Nazis, usually coming from a more Jewish-based mindset, and saying that they are one and the same, and that the Catholics' quote-unquote anti-Semitism is exactly the same as the Nazis' version. 
And is that a conflation that leads to an alchemical equilibrium or trick that people in the alt media still succumb to by conflating the two and claiming that the Jesuits in the Catholic Church created the Nazis, as you'll hear from a lot of more Protestant-type conspiracy theorists. And all one has to do is read through Mein Kampf and some early or pre-Nazi writers like Heinrich von Treitzke, and you'll find it's the exact opposite. The Nazis had far more use for Protestantism and people like Martin Luther than they ever had for the Roman Catholic Church, unless they were able to transmute the Catholic Church into following their racialist policies, but that would make them heretical and excommunicated because Pius Twelfth and a lot of the Catholic clergy and the Jesuits in particular were absolutely rejecting the Nazi anti-Semitism based upon racial and not spiritual grounds. And the other grand irony is that despite a lot of these Protestant conspiracy theorists railing against Freemasonry, occult magic, and all of these ideas in theosophy and whatnot, well, it's actually those viewpoints that are promoting the very same Jesuit or Roman Catholic conspiracy as the Protestants promote. So is that an interesting dialectic where you are unifying on something very fundamental with a group you're claiming to have nothing to do with? So these are the important dialectics to be aware of and the types of tricks that happen. And almost nine times out of ten, whenever these tricks do happen, they are at the expense of the Roman Catholic Church. So that should be a red flag in and of itself that all of these dialectics form on harming and discrediting the Catholic Church and basically slandering it in ways that is not in accordance with reality or history. And even if you don't like the Roman Catholic Church, if you say you're a truth seeker, you have to at least be able to admit that and not toe the New World Order line from whichever faction is promoting these ideas. Because otherwise, you're just promoting the New World Order while claiming you're against it. So wouldn't you want to be more consistent on the issue? And finally, if you're into esotericism or what people might deem occultism or maybe even New Age ideologies, you're going to find that these occult Nazis had a lot of the same exact beliefs as you have. And that should also be a red flag and something that might be concerning for people promoting stuff that's akin to all of these theosophical ideas, even if they lack the racialism attached to it. So with those caveats, concerns, and clarifications set aside, let's dig in. So I'd say a rough estimate, there's about 50-something people of influence in this book in regards to general occultism going around in Austria and Germany and the surrounding areas of the time. And of course, within any movement, you have primary figures who are like the head honchos, the figureheads the solar leaders who are going to influence and shine their light, so to speak, whether it be of a more pure sense or, as Christ says, the light in you being darkness. I think most people would probably argue that it's darkness, but some might not. Either way, there's about four or five of these main figures, and then there's a bunch of secondary ones, and there's actually quite a few tertiary or peripheral ones. And the primary ones are the ones we'll mainly focus on here in this talk, and we'll list them here. We have a Mr. Guido von List, a Mr. Jörg Lanz von Liebensfell, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce a lot of these names terribly, so you're just going to have to deal with it. And we have a Rudolf von Sebottendorf, and he had a little bit of a name change as well, so 
He was born Adam Alfred Rudolf Glauer, and then he changed his name to the more aristocratic Baron Rudolf von Sabattendorf. And you'll find that this is a common theme, that people change their names to sound more aristocratic and having a bit more nobility to them. And I believe we talked about Voltaire doing the same thing in our discussion on Barwell's memoirs. And then there was a Mr. Karl Maria Willigut, and he was very well connected to Mr. Heinrich Himmler. And so a lot of these guys influence all the people surrounding them, or they even work or collaborate with each other, or their ideas are piggybacked. And that's the case with people like Guido von Lies, because he died shortly after World War I. But all of the occultism that he was part of inspired a lot of the occultists carrying those traditions on, especially the ones who became involved with or supported the Nazi party. And then as far as the secondary figures go, there's a lot of different people who are tied to nobility or media and the printing press. There are people that are in the military. There's all kinds of different factions and walks of life that were involved in the more secondary influences. And then the more tertiary people, you have some people who are occultists, but they're more of the stereotypical hippie ilk where they don't like the Nazi party or they don't want to go along with it, or they're even persecuted by the Nazis. So there's some of these occult guys that were dangerous to the state, but that was a bit more rare. More of the people who were involved in it seemed to be much more favorable towards it than the people who weren't, as far as I could tell from the book. And another interesting pattern is a lot of these people who got into this Nazi pagan ideology and practice were born or baptized Roman Catholics, but they certainly reneged on it. And so this is where people will conflate the two, but would somebody say that Voltaire was a staunch example of Roman Catholicism just because he was baptized in it and pretended to be Catholic sometimes because it was convenient for him? Absolutely not. That's just silly. And so that is the same paradigm that we would want to apply to a lot of these guys because they thought there was a Catholic conspiracy against them. So they are reneging from their roots. They are turning on their Catholic heritage in order to go into a more pagan LARPing heritage. And we'll elaborate more on that, but regardless, there is a Roman Catholic apostasy, so to speak, with a lot of these figures, Adolf Hitler being one of them. And despite them hating the French liberal tradition, it's very ironic that many of their ideas sound just like what we talked about in Barwell's memoirs with their own version of LARPing on history and going back to the ideas of the Knights Templar and having this secret Gnostic Gnosis that was to be preserved and the Roman Catholic Church was trying to hunt it down and beat them up like a bunch of meanie faces and very similar to what we discussed with the mythologizing of the Cathars back in episode 20. So recall what we mentioned about dialectics previously because it applies to all of this. So taking it from individuals, now we can go to the social aspect of this, and we had particular orders that were relevant to this Germanic Nazi occultism. And I'm sure many people have heard of the Thule Society, or however you pronounce it, but there's also the Germanenorden, of which it kind of stemmed from, and then also the Reichshammerbund. And so basically, those groups all have sort of a common thread 
And as far as I recall, there were different sort of schisms that happened between them, as usually happens with most revolutionary groups. We talked about the French Revolution's symbol being the all-devouring Ouroboros that was placed upon the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and how ironic is it that they all just kind of swallowed each other up. But guess what? The one thing that they all unified on was they wanted to destroy the old world empire's influence and be the new aristocracy, despite them bickering with each other about who was going to actually be that aristocracy. So this is like the Jacobins fighting with the Girondins, or like the Republicans fighting with the Democrats here in America. Nobody wants to go back to the old world empire or give up their freedoms that come from the Enlightenment principles. So I think for the rest of this first hour, we'll go into these individuals we previously mentioned and elaborate a bit more on them. But before we do that, I just wanted to amalgamate all of the different viewpoints and the different flavors that were kind of fused together in this strange alchemical union, so to speak. So for those esoteric-minded folk, this would be like all of the planets dispersed throughout a natal chart, but having a singularity point in the ascendant, or perhaps the planet that rules it, as being what they are all uniting on as one, as a whole. Which is basically sort of this Gnostic idea of a revival of lost Aryan wisdom, to rise out of the ashes and destroy its oppressors and this conspiracy against them. And then there will be this golden age. So ironically, it doesn't sound a whole lot different than a lot of the rhetoric that you'll hear in the alternative media from the people who have the more new age or occult mindset. There's a wicked system, and if we raise our consciousness and we go back to this lost wisdom that has been hidden by this evil demiurge institution then magically we will rise and it will be a golden era. So it's that same exact rhetoric, that same exact paradigm, just with a few different oddities. And of course, they all kind of bicker about what that broad idea looks like. And actually, I might even relate it to something like the Flat Earth Movement, where they all agree with the idea of the Earth being flat, but how that actually works and what to do about it and what powers are suppressing you, who are the heretics, all that stuff. Well, it gets very complex and there are a lot of little self-devouring battles that go on within it. So this is a paradigm that you can apply to a lot of broad movements or ideas, but are some a bit more self-devouring than others and some can control the chaos of that better than others. So just wanted to make the point that a lot of that applies. So let's talk about this amalgamation. We'll go through all the different things that are fused into this. And I'm not going to make much distinction between which ones are more primary ideas or secondary or tertiary, but I think they're all relatively important. And it's a very strange amalgamation. So there's sort of this Protestant millennialism tied to it. And if Germany is one of the OG Protestant nations, then obviously there is a carryover there that you can derive. And we talked about this in the previous episode on the sons of God and how St. Augustine pretty much eliminated the millennialism from the Roman Catholic Church, forcing all of the millennialist types underground for the thousand years of darkness and re-emerging at the Reformation. And recall the book that we mentioned about the millennialist movements or the glossary or encyclopedia of them, and that if you have these millennialist ideas, you have some very strange bedfellows, but one of them is not the Roman Catholic Church. So there's another interesting 
dialectic or many dialectics being formed, because obviously any sort of Protestant millennialist idea tied to Christ coming back to reign for a thousand years is vastly different than a Nazi or occult millennium like these guys are promoting, or something akin to the French Revolution. So go to check out those books that I listed in the resources file of the Sons of God video if you want to look more into that. But regardless, it is a theme in all of this. And then another aspect to these writings would be a prehistoric golden age when wise Gnostic priesthoods had expounded occult racist doctrines and ruled over a superior and racially pure society. So setting aside the racist doctrines, this is similar to a lot of the Founding Fathers' rhetoric about Saturn's golden age or the stuff you'll find on the dollar bill and what that actually refers to. It's all of this pagan mythology, and this is something that people in the alt media always talk about whenever they get into the idea of a hidden history. They go back to the idea of a golden age or Atlantis, stuff like that, right? This is stuff you'll find in Blavatsky's Theosophy on some level. And Blavatsky's Theosophy is very influential in all of this, but we will make the distinction that her viewpoint and what you find out of the UN doesn't have the racialist doctrine attached to it in an overt sense. Their elitism is tied to the consciousness of the adept. But setting that aside, there was so much overlap with Blavatsky's Theosophy coming from these people like Liszt and Liebenfels that I was actually quite surprised. We'll elaborate on that later. And then we have the Latin or Jewish profane religion conspiracy, where Western civilization was hijacked by some Jewish cult, and Christianity was one of them, and that imposed its demiurge worship on all of Europe, and so thus they are conflating the Jews and the Catholics as being one and the same, or the Abrahamic religions fallacy, where people claim they're worshiping the exact same God, but we know that that's absurd because the Talmud's view on Jesus Christ is the complete opposite of the Catholic one, which makes them incredibly distinct from each other in a very fundamental way. And surprise, surprise, this is what you hear from people in the alt-media who are tied to Gnostic or occult ideas, even if they don't take this Nazi racialism. Again, that's the dialectic. All these other things overlap and sound exactly like what these theosophical Nazis were talking about, and they will bash each other on that. We have a nice little left-right battle within the occult circles in the alternative media, and you saw that manifesting in politics where a lot of the alt-right occultists promoted Trump, and a lot of the alt-left occultists hated Trump and couldn't stop bashing Trump. And then, of course, a lot of the alt-right turned on Trump once he became much more favorable to Israel, so despite those dialectics bashing each other, Guess what? They both unify on being anti-Catholic. And of course, they both unify on promoting the noble savage idea coming from the Enlightenment, where everything was just fine before Christianity imposed its stupid demiurge religion on the rest of the pagan world, and that this universal religion was amazing and we should all go back to it. But they have a different version of what that universal religion is, and they pick and choose which group in history they want to identify with. Some people it's the Mayans or South America. Some people it's the strong Aryan Germans. Some people it's the Druids coming from the British Isles. And for some people, we was Kangs in Africa and came from some sort of Egyptian priest class or something of the like. Now, obviously, another component was the ethnic battles going on at the time. The Poles, the Czechs, the Germans. 
and all that stuff that you can read about in Mein Kampf. And then, of course, stemming from that, we have the pan-German nationalist sentiments that stem from people like Schunerer. We talked about him in contradistinction to Karl Luger in the Pike Templar series in our members section. So if you're interested in that, you can sign up and go watch that. And so, of course, that stemmed from the conflicts with the Catholics and the Habsburgs and also just modernity in general. So this is similar to today, where people are reacting against capitalist materialism right now, and they kind of go into pagan LARPing mode, or the noble savage, or they have this romanticist idea of a way of being that was more simpler, tied to the earth, the land, stuff like that, rather than this pure materialism tied to the Promethean tech worship. So a reaction to capitalism was largely a part of this, and this is why they were blaming a lot of the conspiracy on Jews who were associated with capitalism and free market economics and the Manchester School and the idea of a Judeo-Masonic alliance in Britain. And we can put the exclamation point on this amalgamation by bringing in social Darwinism that played a huge role in all of this with all of the ethnic battles and the politics of the day. So. Just transpose everything you hear of in the alt media today coming from the more occult, pagan, or new age camp, and then just fuse it in with the context of the time, with the battles of the Catholics and the Habsburgs, and Darwinism rising, and the Masons in Britain being tied to Judaism, whereas the Masonry of Germany that they would promote was anti-Jewish. So that is the dialectic there. It's both the same Masonic principles. If you read these occult writers tied to these roots of Nazism or whatever, they sound just like Morals and Dogma or Blavatsky, but they're just adding in the anti-Semitism and racial components. However, is that what everybody does who starts to become overly enamored with these ideas and they add in their own subjective circumstances and surroundings and political plights or whatever it might be, economic, and that's the magic of it. You fuse it to your own subjective gnosis and you create a movement But whenever that happens, I'd say look into history, and this is a great example of it. They never seem to work or sustain themselves. They might be given a bit of time, a few decades, maybe even a century. But they seem to crumble pretty quick. And as to the Catholic old world order, of which they're all unified on rebelling against and saying we don't want that, that lasted for well over a thousand years. So despite any criticisms you can make against the old world empire, If you apply that same standard of judgment onto you and your movement, how do you fare in the process? And I'd say usually it's not very good. And of course, usually there is a distortion of history and a LARPing, so to speak, where they imagine a history. And a lot of the times this history comes to them through a magical experience or a subjective gnosis. Now, the Catholic viewpoint would warn that perhaps that's not coming from such a great place. But if it feels good that people often go with it. And that's what they're warned against, not to be mean, but just because maybe there's actually some objective analysis that we can look at to see what these things lead to over time. And that will lead us straight into Mr. Guido von Liszt, who was the first popular writer to combine the Volkish ideology with occultism and theosophy. And if you look up a picture of him, On any images web search, you'll find he's an interesting looking dude with an intense beard and an intense stare. 
And we're just going to read real quickly from page 33 in the book on Mr. List, because I think it sums it up nicely. Quote, List was regarded by his readers and followers as a bearded old patriarch and a mystical nationalist guru whose clairvoyant gaze had lifted the glorious Aryan and Germanic past of Austria into full view from beneath the debris of foreign influences and Christian culture. In his books and lectures, Liszt invited true Germans to behold the clearly discernible remains of a wonderful theocratic Aero-German state, wisely governed by priest-kings and Gnostic initiates, in the archaeology, folklore, and landscape of his homeland. He applied himself to Kabbalistic and astrological studies, and also claimed to be the last of the Arminist magicians who had formerly wielded authority in the old Aryan world. So we wonder where Mr. List might have gotten his information from, and it's very interesting that it is tied to subjective gnosis through psychic or otherworldly experiences, and that gave him a sort of intuitive guidance or a Holy Spirit of sorts of which he was led to certain things, and that helped him formulate his systems or different versions of history and all the different claims that he had. Now step back and think about this for a second. Is this similar to what we talked about in occult Catholicism when we went over the golem of spiritualism and the alternative media in the videos 8.13 and 14? And what usually seems to happen when you connect with one of these spiritual beings or experiences or guidances, however clear or abstract it may be, People usually end up believing that they had some sort of previous reincarnation or some sort of lineage to some ancient priest class of which they were part of or they should carry on the tradition, but that is the lost gnosis. So the question would be, is that appealing to your ego and your subjectivity where you start to believe that if you were born in Germany, perhaps in the late 19th century, and capitalism is destroying your culture? Well, isn't it convenient that these spirits are telling you that you were tied to some ancient priest class of which you were the aristocracy, and you got this alien force trying to impose its will upon you, its false demiurge authority, and you will rise above it by tapping into this gnosis through all of these magical rituals or whatever it might be? Or sometimes people get the reincarnation story where they were some ancient important person fighting against this same tyranny centuries earlier, right? But you have to trust that this source of information that is coming from some abstract metaphysical connection isn't deceiving you or lying to you and actually is the one appealing to your subjective situation and prodding at your pride strings and setting you up for a big fall. And that's essentially what happened, where people like Guido von Liszt were predicting this Aryan revival and that they were going to conquer against this alien force before World War I. And so how could the spirits be wrong, right? If they're supposed to triumph and rise, well, it's going to happen, right? Otherwise, why should you trust them? And of course, what ends up happening is they don't rise and World War I happens and Germany ends up in a much worse spot than before. And you would think that they would reject these spiritual intuitions that led them to think that because it just didn't happen. 
But is it like heroin where you get addicted and you keep going back and think, well, maybe I did something wrong? Or they got some things right, but they weren't really very relevant. And the major things they got wrong, but you rationalize it. And then you're addicted to occult information coming from an outside source. And then you'll never break out of that until you can admit that maybe you were duped and it was appealing to your ego and pride, trying to make you out to be some long-lost nobility and part of some shamanic priest class. And that might be relevant to anybody listening who is reacting to a capitalist materialist society like Guido von List and is turning to some of these occult practices and new age gnosis in whatever fashion. And perhaps the warning would be whether you choose to heed it or not, is that that didn't work out so great for Mr. Guido von List or all of his Aryan occult associates. So why would it work out for you? And is it leading you to a sort of noble, savage, LARPing history where you believe all these things about these ancient tribes and maybe the reality is it was pretty brutal and Christian Empire actually brought it out of the real Dark Ages even though all of our modern society, Freemasonry, Theosophy, and Whig history tells us that it was the Dark Ages, right? Is that the trick? Something to think about, and if you do think maybe that's the case, you're not alone. This has duped many hundreds of thousands of people throughout the ages, myself being one of them to varying degrees. So let's talk about Mr. Guido's first spiritual experience, and it's a strange one, and I think that this is very bizarre and very interesting, and you don't need to take it to Nazi ancient alien stuff to find all of this weirdness. So let's just read from page 34 on this, and I think it will summarize it quite well. Like most Austrians, the List family was Roman Catholic, and Liss had been duly christened at St. Peter's Church in Vienna. However, in 1862, an incident occurred that revealed his lack of interest in Orthodox religion when his father and friends planned to visit the catacombs beneath St. Stephen's Cathedral List was determined to accompany the adults, so he's a young boy here, and he's going through this cathedral tour. And it states, The dark and narrow vaults made a strong impression on him. He later claimed that he had knelt before a ruined altar in the crypt and sworn to build a temple to Wotan once he had grown up. Eventually, he regarded the labyrinth under the cathedral as a pre-Christian shrine dedicated to this pagan deity of Wotan. List was later to claim that his conversion dated from this revelation. So that's quite bizarre. He's hanging out below a Catholic cathedral, and he's in a more staunchly Roman Catholic family of which his father had his own leather shop or business and wanted him to carry on that tradition. So there was a tradition there right in front of his face that he could continue on, but instead he wanted to choose the ancient Wotan priest class tradition which does sound a lot more appealing than carrying on a leather goods or saddle-making tradition, but the latter may or may not have been an entire fabrication by deceiving spirits wanting to take you away from your family, not to mention your Roman Catholic tradition and lead you further into pioneering Nazi-Aryan occult mysticism and theosophy. Another fun fact is that his mother was the daughter of an Austrian aristocrat who fought against the Masonic 1848 revolution that we talked a lot about in the Pike Templar series, especially in the latter segments. 
So perhaps the moral of the story is when you are in a Catholic family and you are visiting an old Catholic cathedral, it's probably not a good idea to swear your allegiance to a pagan deity named Wotan while you're there and promise to build him a temple of worship when you get older. I mean, you can do it, but is it a very good idea? And of course, the commandment of honoring your father and mother was violated here because this ambition to dedicate himself to Wotanism brought him into conflict with his father who wanted him to work in the family leather business as the eldest son and heir. So is he like Esau in the Old Testament rejecting his birthright? And so henceforth he divided his time between the claims of commerce and a private world of art, imagination, and nature worship. And his ritualization of such adventures served to make his private world even more exclusive and earned him the reputation of a lone wolf and mystic. And so as you read more about him, it becomes pretty obvious that he's reacting against the capitalist materialist system and modernity that is creeping into Austria, but he's using that as a symbol to attach to his father's business and rejecting the lineage and kind of going off into pagan LARP mode in the woods and inventing his own history and finding these different sites and claiming that they were these ancient ritual temples of worship to all of these pagan deities in Germanic folklore. And of course, that the Catholic Church crushed this and destroyed it, and they're the bad guys. At least that's what this ancient spirit of Mr. Wotan is leading him to believe or intuitively guiding him towards. And then he starts personifying all of these natural principles as spirits, and he's taking it from Teutonic myths and folklore, but he will merge this with ancient Catholic orders. But of course, they're not the typical Catholic order as we would understand them. They're more of the Gnostic, Kabbalistic version that's holding a secret and preserving it, much like we'll read about the Templars in Freemasonry. However... Recall that in the first podcast we did on Barwell's memoirs in the second hour, we talked about this paradigm of the occult Masonic ideas of the Templars being persecuted by the King of France, and surprise, surprise, they were trying to foment revolution against the King of France of that day, and so they were connecting this idea of a secret Gnostic order preserving some sort of magical tradition that was antithetical to Catholic Christianity, and that they were drawing upon this spirit in order to cause revolution and behead the King of France in Louis XVI. And how symbolic was it that they imprisoned him in a Knights Templar tower that was not previously used as a prison? It's rather symbolic and shows that perhaps they were influenced by all of this occult Masonic literature in a very direct way. So do we see the same thing happening here with Mr. List, but it's a different set of circumstances, and it's the Germanic side of things, the Germanic subjectivity. However, we will find them railing against the French kings, because the French kings are always the worst, and oddly enough, they also happen to be the most Catholic throughout history, and everybody from the Jews to the modern Whig history to the occult Masons left or right to the Matrix movies coming out of Hollywood promoting Jewish Gnosticism, to sometimes even Eastern Orthodox, who will promote a Frankish conspiracy and bashing all of the French kings. So oddly enough, those are some very strange bedfellows 
amongst all of these different viewpoints that seemingly would conflict with each other, yet they centralize on this particular focus of bashing these Catholic French kings. I find that quite strange. Especially when the spirits don't like the Catholic French kings. We talked about in the Occult Catholicism series, in the Golem of the Truther World or Spiritualism, how David Icke was led intuitively by these spirits into bashing the Merovingian kings as part of the elite Archon bloodlines, whilst also sympathizing with the Gnostic dualist Cathars in their plight against the Roman Catholic Church. And we discuss them in detail in episode 20, and perhaps that's not a group you might want to associate yourself with, where they call babies evil and engage in suicide rituals, and also sometimes promoted Sabbatean Frankist-type doctrines of not being able to sin from the waist down. So do what thou wilt with your naughty bits, just don't produce any children. That sounds more like the New World Order to me. But you will find the Nazis LARPing about the Cathars and how they promoted this ancient Aryan racist doctrine and that was part of their secret gnosis. And we talked about people like Otto Rahn and the dialectic of his Jewish background tying in with this Gnostic Nazi type ideology, while at the same time we had a French Jewish liberal promoting this LARPing on the Cathars. So what is the unifying factor here? The Cathars are always good for entirely subjective reasons, and it's because they were rebelling against the old world Catholic Church. So you have the Nazis doing this, you have Jewish-French liberals, you have alternative media truthers who go and have ayahuasca trips in South America, all promoting the same thing, but for different subjective reasons. And is that the point? Your subjectivity is being used against you. And when there's spirits involved telling you these things, why are they promoting what the New World Order promotes and bashing the Old World Empire in the same ways that you'll see in Whig propaganda? I find that very odd as well. So we'll wrap up on list in a few more points here. One of them being that after his father died and he was forced to make his own living and now refrain from his pagan expeditions and explorations in the woods... Well, he fell on hard times because he was not really suited for commerce. And I find it interesting that this all happened when he was about 28 to 30 years old, around the time of the quote-unquote Saturn return. So was the Saturnine reality knocking down his grandiose Jupiterian dreams and the ideal way to be as a Wotanist priest, but that didn't quite pay the bills and now he's forced to. And unfortunately, this leads him into the darker territory of the pan-German movement and a lot of the pre-Nazi type of rhetoric and people like Schunerer. And this was all happening during the Kulturkampf in Germany, which was a vehemently anti-Catholic and anti-Jesuit movement. And this is where you get a lot of the Catholic conspiracy theories coming from these alt-right types and their imposition of the inferior Latin religion upon strong Aryan-Germanic heritage. And that's exactly the type of rhetoric that comes out of Guido von Liszt's later writings in his full-length novel Carnuntum, which apparently was inspired by a memorable summer solstice party of 1875. And from this he got many visionary revelations of which he incorporated into it, and he suggested that there were two periods of Roman Dark Ages which suppressed this Germanic Aryan spirit 
and its alleged high civilization, and that one of them was roughly between 100 to 375 AD, and then secondly with the advent of Christianity, or the other Rome as he called it, and that represented the contemporary Catholic establishment in Austria of which he loathed. So that's right in line with all of the Kulturkampf propaganda going on during the time. And Liszt also claimed that there were ancient Teutonic knights, so to speak, of the Germanic Aryan spirit, which had practiced a Gnostic religion emphasizing the initiation of man into natural mysteries. And he called this religion Wotanism after the principal god of the Germanic pantheon, of whom Liszt regarded as having some sort of kinship with the old Norse poetry of Iceland, and that these Icelandic folks were persecuted by the Christian religion, and then these refugees came from Iceland to Germany and helped initiate people into these mysteries. And then this got into rune magic and all these ideas tied to the powers of the universe and harnessing them through these rituals, and then having a sort of reincarnation attached to that where you have a birth and rebirth. And this is all tied to the great cyclical cycle of nature. And included with all of these magical practices tied to the cosmos and death and rebirth, reincarnation, etc. There were typical axioms or mottos attached, such as know yourself and then you know everything and embrace the universe in yourself and then you can be master of both. So as above, so below, you are the inner cosmos, and that is how you know yourself, and all that kind of stuff we talked about in occult science. That's basically promoted by science these days, and a lot more of that occultism is becoming more apparent. So when you have a lot of this kind of rhetoric going on in the alternative media, and you find it tied to people having these magical Wotan experiences telling them that Catholicism is a big conspiracy and we need to invigorate the Aryan race, well, you have some very strange bedfellows and all of the overlapping rhetoric that is attached to that. And then there's this emphasis on union with God tied to this Gnostic occult wisdom and you even have some of these rune dudes having their own type of yoga attached to it, which is interesting. And then they even have some sort of tantra or sexual magic tied to it as well. The eroticism, bacchanalia, libido, and mania within a racist and sexological content, as the author states. And that the unity of the cosmos is embodied in this sex act of uniting the opposites. And again, this is very akin to... The ideas in Tantra and Eastern mysticism, but it's also attached to human sacrifice on top of Aztec pyramids, as we discussed in occult Catholicism. So I guess each culture has its own unique way of expressing this universal pagan religion of equilibrium of the cosmos. So with that being said, let's move on and talk about Mr. Liebenfels. So in the second hour, we'll expand more upon the nature of these religions and the orders themselves, and all of the teachings. And right now we're just trying to talk about the specific primordial figures in this movement. And like Mr. List, he also disobeyed his parents' wishes, but instead this was to enter a monastery in Vienna. And this is interesting because this is where he got this lore about the Templars, but, of course, 
he wasn't preaching any of the typical Catholic understandings of Christianity. He had this theosophical Aryan New Age ideology attached to it. And apparently at this monastery he was at, he had access to rare apocryphal and Gnostic texts. And so that's where he got a lot of these ideas. And he started to adopt this Manichaean dualism, which we know was very much present in the Cathar heresy, and that the Arian Christ was also related to a Nordic savior named Frauha, or Frauja, I don't know how to pronounce it, F-R-A-U-J-A. This apparently was the Gothic name for Jesus, and Jesus was fighting against the evil Demiurge, or the agents of the God of the Old Testament, or the Jews, and that is akin to the Nazi positive Christianity that has a very Gnostic understanding that denies the Old Testament completely, and saying that Christ had nothing to do with the Old Testament, which is absurd if you read all of the times that Christ quotes from it to identify himself as the Jewish Messiah. So, this is another bad theological LARPing going on, and typical of what you find in Gnosticism. And the irony is that a lot of the Gnosticism that is generally promoted is tied to Jewish rebels in the first few centuries AD. And we talked about how it was predominantly a Jewish movement, especially tied to the dualism and rejecting the Old Testament creator God. And that is the irony here. If these Aryan Nordic people are rejecting all Judaism, it seems very strange that they're adopting its very same ideas, albeit them being Jewish rebels against their own rabbinical tradition. Some might call that God's divine joke, at least maybe from the Catholic perspective. And Liebenfels apparently had an impact on Hitler to what extent it is debated, and that is gotten into a bit more extensively at the end of the book in the last chapter. And so he's mixing some very interesting things here. Let's read a little bit from page 92. Taking the scriptures, apocrypha, modern archaeological discoveries, and anthropology as his further sources, Lance von Liebenfelds assimilated the current racist ideas into a dualistic religion. He finally identified the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Aryan race, as defined by such contemporary social Darwinist writers as Karl Penke, Ludwig Voltmann, and Ludwig Vilsner, as the good principle and the various dark races of Negroes, Mongols, and Mediterraneanoids as the evil principle, thus representing the Old Testament demiurge if they keep calling the Roman Catholics or the Jews part of a subversive desert cult, right? You hear that all the time. And Lance's distinctive contribution to racist ideology was this translation of scientific ideas and prejudice into a Gnostic doctrine which typified the blonde and dark races as cosmic entities working respectively for order and chaos in the universe. And this is particularly interesting in relationship to rereading the Black Legend, the book we talked about, where there is Anglo-Saxon propaganda calling these Spanish as having more blood, so they're mixed with Africans, and that makes them more backwards than other races, and surprise, surprise, they adhere to the Catholic religion, which is also backwards. So this is very much akin to this, where Catholicism is being mixed in with these darker Mediterranean races, and that is part of the evil principle of the Gnostic Demiurge. And so the only real difference here between people promoting that in the alt-media is there is a racialism attached to it, but 
Is that just going with the subjective context of the times because that rhetoric was going around all over the place and was very popular, whereas now it's very unpopular to talk like that, and so therefore people adopt the anti-racist rhetoric into their new version of Gnosticism, but still apply the demiurge and the evil principle to institutions like the Roman Catholic Church. I would also say in a further irony with Mr. Lance von Liebenfels is that his vows of celibacy in the monastery didn't seem to be working out too well for him, much like Martin Luther. And he started getting into the ideas of sex magic and orgiastic rituals tied to this esoteric gnosis. And he starts getting into all of these pagan Hellenistic authors and the idea of mystery cults in the ancient world. He starts getting obsessed with obelisks and secret revelations hidden in ancient cuneiform and inscriptions that are in these obelisks or basic Egyptian hieroglyphs. Sounds familiar? And he was also convinced that the principal locale of these cults laid in the Near East. So everything goes back to the East, right? This sounds like Madame Blavatsky. And so for all of this sexploration, so to speak, the register of his monastery in describing his leave was that he surrendered to the lies of the world and carnal love. So apparently the monastery wasn't too pleased with his activities or ideas. But we get a different side of the story from Mr. Lance, who defiantly justified this apostasy with his assertion that the Cistercian order had betrayed its original racist doctrines and that he would be able to reform the world better from the outside. So they didn't understand these deep esoteric Gnostic texts that taught that Jesus was an Aryan racial purist and that these stupid Catholics don't understand that and preach the exoteric teaching. Ugh, how dumb, how ignorant. They don't understand these deep Gnostic Egyptian mysteries of sex magic and whatever else. And so thus, his viewpoint is a little bit different than the Catholic Order's viewpoint on the situation. But we'll let you decide which one sounds more legit. And of his three anti-clerical books that he published shortly after leaving the Abbey, well, they basically testify to this general attitude. And apparently other evidence suggests that he joined Schooner's pan-German movement and converted to Protestantism, and then supposedly got married upon leaving the order. So he went the way of Martin Luther, if you adhere to those accounts. And such actions would explain his renunciation of vows, and then blaming the Catholics for being ignorant when he was actually not able to keep it in his pants reading about all of this Gnostic sex magic. And surprise, surprise, he starts going into different Gnostic-type writings on Enoch, like we talked about with the Sons of God, and all of the Gnostic dualism attached to that. And he also read apocryphal texts like the Pistis Sophia and the Acts of John. And of course, the fall of man is an allegory for the degeneration of certain racial species into the animal nature. And that would be the satanic cults that are mixing with bloodlines and all kinds of stuff that you'll hear about in the alternative media and people promoting these very same ideas, albeit without the Aryan supremacy. Some of them do, but generally speaking, those basic broad concepts you find all over the place. And it's just rife with all of this Gnostic Archon theology. And look what it breeds. Things like occult Aryan Nazis. So even if you personally believe these things but don't take it to the racist level, 
Do you find yourself becoming very at odds with the Nazi occultism and even fascinated by it? And perhaps pit on a dialectic where you are railing against everything as being tied to some esoteric satanic Nazi cult as being the source of all evil in the world? Well, are you just falling into the same all-devouring Ouroboros serpent in the process? And that one major opposition that has been reversed is actually the source of your dialectical conflict. And it is all unifying on the Roman Catholic Church as being the quote-unquote beast or part of this satanic demiurge. But they are believed to be that for the entirely opposite reasons. And things get alchemically conflated. And that's actually the point. And Liebenfels also gets into Hindu stuff tied to the codes of Manu and evolution, reincarnation, and all that typical stuff that you hear from Blavatsky. It's all tied into this on some level. And he also has some notions of the monist philosophies of Ernst Haeckel, whom we talked about in the Pike Templar series as having a huge problem with the Jesuits and that they were trying to take Darwin and Catholicize it and try to imply a creator and only applying the Darwinian evolution as a possibility amongst animals but not humans. And so Hackle had a crazy outburst against the Jesuits with that, and he formulated propaganda against Irish Catholic prelates by comparing them to looking like monkeys. So again, we have the racism tied to the Catholic nations as being part of the backwards demiurge race coming from German Darwinist thinking. So we're going to wrap up the first hour here, and in the next we will pick up with Mr. Baron von Sabattendorf, who's a very interesting figure. And there's another irony here where he got all of his esoteric wisdom from merchant Kabbalist Jews in order to bring about ideas of the Jews being a backwards race that is part of the Gnostic Demiurge. So isn't that strange that all of this occult Kabbalah is coming from Jews, yet the Germans are trying to say that all the problems lie with the Jews? So there is a funky contradiction that perhaps relates to all of the occult truthers who blame everything on occult Nazis. Is that yet another contradictory dialectic? And it's all at the expense of old world Catholic Christendom. And we'll get into Sabatendorf's ties to the Young Turks, who have, oddly enough, ties to Zionism. And there's a weird dialectic of Zionism and anti-Semitism in Germany that goes on. And it gets into really messy territory, so maybe we can sort some of that out, along with the rest of these esoteric orders and their beliefs and ties to Himmler and Willigut and the Thule Society. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com.